This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I seriously love BetterHelp so much. They're one of my favorite sponsors, and I will tell you why I love them so much. When I started this podcast, I was going through a really rough time. I'm talking drug relapse, drug addiction, drug abuse, relationship issues, anxiety, depression. I was going through one of the craziest moves of my life, so therapy really helped me get through a lot of that. And online therapy is, in my opinion, even better than going to a therapist's office because, let's face it, our lives have changed the last year or so, and I just feel like online therapy is the best way to go. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating with them in less than 48 hours. They really do match you with, with a therapist so quickly. It takes, in my case, less than 24 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It's professional counseling done securely online. And there's a broad range of expertise available, which might not really be locally available in all areas. The service is available for clients worldwide, and it's super easy to access your account. You can log in, you can send a message to your counselor really at any time you want, and you'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions, whatever you prefer. I like to do phone sessions sometimes because sometimes I like to, to go on a walk when I, go on, when I do my therapy sessions. It's really up to you. Traditional therapy can come with kind of a stressful energy attached to it. So I really love how BetterHelp is really controlled by the, the patient. If you want to connect with your therapist and communicate something with them, they have a journal feature, which I absolutely love. This journal feature has the option of sharing your journal entries with your therapist, but if you want to keep them totally uh, private and anonymous towards yourself, you don't have to share them with your therapist. But I really like this feature because for many of us, starting fresh with a new therapist gives us a lot of anxiety and it can trigger us. Um, so if you feel like that, you're not alone. I felt the same exact way because let's face it, a new therapist has to ask questions and try to get on the same page as where their client is. And sometimes rehashing our, our history of trauma and all the details can become kind of exhausting and a little bit annoying. So what I do when I start with a new therapist, like I did on BetterHelp, is I use the journal feature and I wrote kind of a lengthy email explaining to the therapist where what I've been through in the last few years, where I'm at right now, what I'm looking for in therapy, and what kind of therapy I've done, what kind of therapy I'm interested in, and what I'd like um, out of a therapist. So this is super important. If starting with a brand new therapist gives you panic or anxiety or stress, 
This is the most stress-free approach you could possibly do. I love how they matched me with someone with the experience and qualifications that I asked for. I personally asked for a therapist who had some experience with eating disorders, depression, and relationship trauma. Once BetterHelp matched me with my therapist, she messaged me right away and then I scheduled my first session with her for that week. The process is easy, effortless, and stress-free. BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is available. So if you're going through a hard time right now, and let's face it, so many of us are, whether it's emotional turbulence, depression, anxiety, relationship issues, LGBTQ issues, whatever it is, body image, self-esteem, BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. Visit betterhelp.com vibe. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, and join over 1 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Vibe within listeners, you get 10% off of your first month of online counseling at betterhelp.com slash vibe. That's betterhelp.com slash vibe. Betterhelp.com slash vibe. Go start online therapy. DM me on Instagram. Let me know how it's going. And I hope that you get the help, the support, and the healing that you deserve. Welcome to the Vibe Within Podcast. I'm your host, Gab Cohen. Each week, we will connect through stories and conversations about wellness, yoga, addictions, spirituality, mental health, rituals, and everything in between. The goal is to transform our traumas into strengths to create the change we desire in our lives. My mission is to help others by shining awareness on real-life topics so we can learn new ways to heal physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Whatever you are going through in this moment, you are not alone, so let's connect and heal our vibe within. this intro um there's four planets that are retrograde right now and those planets are pluto saturn jupiter and venus and i'm not an astrologer i probably never will be but i have been doing a lot of research on this and watching a lot of YouTube videos, reading a lot of articles from some of my favorite astrologers, and it's really interesting to to notice where we are right now in just the scheme of things with like the events that have been going on with our our communities and what's going on in like a social setting and how these different planets kind of connect and correlate with each of those things like Saturn has to do with communication and 
you know, rock bottoms and change and growth that can sometimes be painful. Um, Venus has to do with our self-love, love towards others, how we receive love, how we accept love, how we, how we give love, how we perceive love. Um, Jupiter is a very, I think, don't, don't, don't take my word on this, but from what I've read, um, it's more of a logical planet. So it has to do with like statistics and a plan and more like heady. And then what was the other one? Pluto. Pluto has to do with more of the underworld. Um, it's ruled by Mars or sorry, um, it's, it's ruled by Scorpio, so, um, at least I think so, again, if I'm wrong, just tell me to shut up, or you can just fast forward, but it's just interesting, because these planets don't go retrograde all at once, all the time, and we're about to move into eclipse season, the first eclipse is going to be in June, and it's in the sign of Sagittarius, so, if you're a Sag like me, maybe you're feeling a lot of these energetic shifts occurring. Um, I know that right when Venus went retrograde, I felt it, and I felt it in my body. Um, I've been doing a lot of like high, high interval workouts and running and jogging and walking outside because it was making me feel good. And then all of a sudden, Venus went retrograde, and I think the other planets went retrograde as well. And I felt my like my body was going through a really bad autoimmune flare-up. Um, I was just diagnosed with Hashimoto a few months ago, so if you um, are dealing with any of those issues, I've got tons of episodes all about that topic in particular. There's one I did with Fern Olivia. We talk about the thyroid and gut connection. Um, There's actually an episode where I talk all about my thyroid journey in particular. There's also an episode that I talk about like weaning off of medication. So if you just Google it, um, it'll come up and I will try to link them in the show notes as well. But if you're suffering with autoimmune or any type of um, adrenal fatigue or hormonal imbalance, Right now, you might be feeling it way more intensely because, you know, just like the moon regulates and controls the waves and the tides of the ocean, the planets have a gravitational pull on us as well, and they can manipulate our energy just like the moon does, you know? That's why they say, like, when when it's a full moon, all the crazies come out. When it's a full moon, it's controlling the tides, and we are made of 78% water or something. So it only makes sense, and I'm sure this, this, this isn't the first time you've heard someone say that before because you're pretty tapped in. If you're listening to this podcast, then I know that you're on my level, so you, you get what I'm saying. Um, with that said, the last few days, I've just been really vegging out and trying to listen to my body more and not do hit workouts, um, not get too much sun because I felt like I kind of had a fever. So, you know, it's also getting a lot warmer down here in Florida where I am. So it's, it's, you know, it's 90 some degrees and that's normal now because we're in the summertime. Um, you know, 
I also wanted to mention that my episodes, um, I'm recording this intro and it's super fresh, but some of my episodes that I will be releasing are um, recorded before quarantine. So I just want to be, you know, straight up with you guys that I am kind of going um, up and down in order and it's not like in a chronological order sometimes because I feel like certain episodes I just am really passionate about and I want to get out there and then there's some episodes that I want to kind of put on the back burner and save for a rainy day or edit a little bit more or just marinate on it a little bit more so that you know if you're wondering why some of the episodes seem like they're kind of out of order um, that's why and you know what it's not really about being linear at this point when an episode resonates with the collective, that's when I put it out. I do pre-record episodes and so I have them and so that I can just kind of start editing instead of having to worry about recording and I record when I feel like I need to record and it's very organic. So I don't I don't just record one day out of the week. I record some days um, every day or some, some weeks I only record a few times. But um, when I first started this podcast, I did a challenge with myself and I actually recorded one episode every day for 30 days. And that was really fun because it challenged me to really get outside of my comfort zone. And even if I felt like I didn't have anything, you know, quote unquote, useful to say that day, I still challenged myself and created an awesome episode. So the first, you know, 30 or 40 episodes of my podcast were very momentum-based, and I think those are some of the best episodes. I mean, I love I love all my recent episodes, too, but, and I think that I'm just getting deeper and deeper into this podcasting realm, so my skills are getting better, but the first episodes of, you know, there's a sex episode, there's, there's so many episodes that people still to this day uh, message me about, so... If you are trying to binge on this podcast, there's tons of episodes in the beginning that maybe you haven't listened to. Uh, With that said, this interview that I did with Jonathan um, was a couple of months ago, maybe two or three months ago, um, and I had been really loving his content for a long time now, and you know, he's a storyteller, he's a writing mentor, he shares a lot about trauma and healing trauma and the the creative aspect of storytelling and how it can be so therapeutic. Um, he just has a really, really vulnerable and open outlook as a male writer. He's very open with a lot of the childhood traumas that he has gone through and This conversation that we had together um, was very intimate and um, it was before the quarantine, so it is over Zoom, but it was a really intimate conversation and really easy to get deep with him because we shared stories about our childhood, about 
adolescence about self self judgment and friendship and romantic partnership and how to not identify ourselves as a trauma victim Um, we really go through the entire motions of what it feels like to start really doing the shadow work and facing our trauma and and instead of being a victim um, using it as as power using it as momentum and he talks a lot about money and the stigma around money and success and how we are our own worst critic. Um, at the end, he also shares some really, really useful tips for writers if you're trying to make money writing, um, writing articles and whatnot. So this really, um, I think there's going to be something in this episode for everyone, especially if you are a writer and you're looking for some tactical ways to... Um, you know, get out there. I mean, I've been writing articles for a while with Medium and Elephant Journal, but they don't pay. Um, All the articles that I write are unpaid, and I write them because it's it's dying to come out of my heart. It's dying to come out of my soul, and um, this is this is what I mean when I'm, I'm saying that writing can be therapeutic, storytelling can be therapeutic, writing an article or a journal entry can be one of the most therapeutic things that you can do for yourself. So I think you're really going to like this episode with me and John Romaniello. I suck at pronouncing Italian last names, even though I am Italian. <laughs> um, but... If you want to follow him on Instagram, it's just at John Romaniello, and he's always sharing amazing stories and captions and super inspiring and vulnerable and lots of shadow and light in his profile. So before we get into it, if you would like to support this podcast in the most free and easy way you can just rate subscribe and review this podcast or share it with a friend or a family member if you enjoyed the episode you can just screenshot it text it copy the link do whatever you feel called to Um, and if you have a couple minutes extra in your day today and you can write me a review on itunes or leave me a five-star rating that helps too so Without further ado, let's get right into this episode. I wanted to, well, I found you on Instagram, obviously, but we're, it as, feels like we're, as people do. Yeah. It feels like we're meeting in person, but, but the digital real world is what you just said. Yeah. I mean, I feel like this. I, I don't have any friends who I met in real life first. Um, I have three. So my, my three best friends who I like went to high school with were all still very close and um except for them every other important person in my life i met through the internet yeah and i just i don't know how i don't know like, where do you meet a real person like not on the internet like, i don't have an office job i don't I'm not just striking up conversations randomly so this is this to me is is real like being, you know this is this is real life so even though we are not in the same room sharing the same air we're face to face through this lovely technology. We're touching voices, yeah. and I think that that's you know this is great. I I I have built such tremendously close friendships and with such frequent contact online 
that there have been many occasions where I am at an event or something and I see someone and I give them a hug and we're just like interacting. And then we realize, oh, this is the first time we've actually physically touched, but, <laughs> right. but we've known each other for years. So it is nice to meet you in the, in the real digital world. I'm glad that we're having this experience. Yeah, that, I think that'll, that'll hit with everybody because, I don't know, our generation is just a little bit different. Like, yes, we still meet people out in the real world, but as a, as a creative and just everything, basically everything is on Instagram. And I could say the same thing, like most of my expander people, like people who really helped me see my potential, I've met on Instagram. So, yeah. yeah. And um, so I wanted to, to kind of ask you about your, your upbringing and if you could like give me a snapshot of, of a, a certain phase during your life that was very memorable for maybe some reason during your childhood or your adolescence that kind of, if, if you were to explain it, I would get a good sense of, of you, of John, just from that. Oh, goodness. Wow. My, my childhood. Um, all right. So do you, I, I have, I can give you, I can give you childhood, which is like kind of dark and very, you know, or I can, I can give you adolescence, which is like less dark and more. How about a little bit of both? I'll do one of each. Okay. Yeah. And so I will, um, I'll Tarantino this. I'm going to start with my adolescence. So my, my adolescence, by which I mean from the ages of like 12 to maybe 16, was a very nerdy time. I was the kind of kid who played Magic the Gathering, which for those of you who don't know, for those of you who were cool and didn't play Magic, or don't know what Magic, you're, if you're so cool that you don't even know what Magic the Gathering is, it's a, it's a trading card game. Like if you're on the younger side, you might've seen this with Pokemon where you have a deck of cards with uh, different artifacts and spells and monsters and you, you play against other characters and you win or, you know, but nobody's a real winner, we're all, but I played Magic the Gathering and Dungeons and Dragons. And um, I, I didn't even have the good sense to do this like in the privacy of my own home. I was the kind of kid who played Magic the Gathering at like the middle school cafeteria tables. So everybody, <laughs> everybody around me knew the weird shit that I was into. And I, at the time, see people don't realize this now, like now it's like people have Harry Potter weddings and, and they like, there's, it's totally a billion normal. dollar thing. It's totally normal to be quote nerdy, right? Oh yeah, totally. Now it is, but you know, so the nerds have won, you know, Lord of the Rings swept the Oscars and, you know, Harry Potter is one of those. But at the time when I was 12 years old, which was in 1990, this was not a thing. Like even comic books weren't cool then. What was cool was sports yeah. and surfing and being mean to people. We, we weren't in a woke time. Right. And so playing Dungeons and Dragons was, um, was my escape in a lot of ways. And, uh, playing Magic the Gathering and I, I was just always into this very nerdy swords and sorcery type stuff and for me nothing really felt real until I had written about it and so now I teach writing and storytelling and all of the lessons that I learned playing those games serve me so well and at the time I you know I didn't know how not to be authentic in this one regard I didn't know how to disguise my interest in this material and the dragons and the the swords and 
the magic. So you were, you were writing about, you were kind of I taking was, your experience with playing that game and creating actual writings from it. Exactly, because I was, I was the dungeon master in D&D, which meant I would write the adventures that my friends would go through the campaigns. And the first piece, the only thing I've ever gotten turned down by a publisher was the first short story I ever wrote. And I sent it off to um, Scry Magazine, which was the, the type of magazine you would read to learn like how to have a really powerful Magic the Gathering deck. And I was like 15. And, um, and, and at the time, there was, there was no like email. You couldn't send an email attack. I mean, the email existed, but that wasn't a thing. If you wanted to submit something to a magazine, you printed it out, you put it in a manila envelope, and you mailed it to right. these people with like a cover letter. <laughs> yeah. And so it got turned down. And the editor sent it back to me. And it, it was not, it wasn't what I would call scathing criticism, but neither was it overly kind, but it was very helpful. And it was like, this is derivative. This is what's wrong with it. The writing is okay. This is, this is a place where it's good. And it was How the old were you at this point? I was 15 years old. And you were sending pieces into publications. That's amazing. Yeah. I was just like, I'm going to do this. <laughs> and yeah. then I spent a year just getting better and writing stories that weren't very good. And the next year I sent in another piece. It was about this group of adventurers, like hunting goblins in a forest. Um, Cause I was, I just want to really talk about, I was so cool. It was, I was the coolest person you've ever met. I was writing <laughs> short stories, but it, it got, it got published and oh, they paid shit. me for it. And it was the first professional piece of writing that I ever had. And I got, I got paid uh, $300. That's really young and, too to to yeah. have writing like it, it's a very young like when you think of a, a kid writing an essay when they're fifteen like I loved writing in high school but I don't think my essays were that great um, but that's really awesome that you had that like at such a young age like that that was probably your your first ping that like this is what I want to do was it yeah it it's I think that I was averse to challenge in a lot of way a lot of ways and and i i always received a lot of feedback for things that i was already good at and just being a, a kid with validation issues and being a validation seeker i just kept doing a thing that people kept telling me i was good at so i avoided That's i had this true. habit of avoiding sports and avoiding things that i wasn't great at and gravitating towards those where there was this sort of innate success that let lay there so the first thing i ever got turned down was a piece about i don't remember that particular one but i remember the first one i got published um and then four years later when i got into fitness i was 20 years old and i had my i had gone through this body transformation and i had gotten my first piece published by um by one of the largest bodybuilding sites and that kicked off my career as a fitness writer which then led to uh, a book on the New York Times bestseller list and the career that I have now and all of the things. But in a very real way, it all started because I loved telling stories and being told stories and uh, because I didn't have a good sense to play Magic the Gathering at home with my nerd friends. We had to do it right out there where the lacrosse players could see. <laughs> but uh, in plain sight. In plain sight, right. And uh, it, it wasn't until later I learned how to hide it. But going going back a little earlier, when I things I did learn how to hide, um, since you asked about a story from my childhood, 
my childhood. Okay. I grew up in a very abusive household. I grew up with a, a father who, in addition to having anger problems and had, had gone through probably some really traumatic stuff himself, also had a fondness for cocaine. And so like many, many people in the 80s, my parents did a lot of blow. Um, if you had any money at all, that's what you did. And so when I was very young, my parents, they were entrepreneurs. They they started a mom and pop uh, video store back before Blockbuster and then Blockbuster eventually wow. put them out of business. But from like 1985 to 1989, 1988, let me see, I was born in 82. In 1985 to 1988, they like had a three year period where they were like killing it. They were like ahead so, of the, the curve. Yeah. Wow. So they were making, making the money doing, you know, doing the mom and pop video store and, um, but anyway, my dad was a really abusive guy. He, he was very brutal to my mother and to me. I saw a lot of horrible stuff done to my mom. And then when I was, you know, six or seven, it started happening to me just like, just, and I would often antagonize him so that he would hit me instead of my mom. But mm -hmm. the crazy thing is, I have these two very distinct sets of memories of my father. One of them is him like breaking my ribs and cracking my skull and doing all the things that abusive dad. And I don't, by the way, when I'm saying it now, please, anyone listening, do not let the tone of my voice at all lead you to believe that I'm trivializing the trauma there. I've just worked on it right. to the point where I, I can be very casual about it. But for anyone else for whom this is triggering, I apologize. I, I don't mean to make light of it. Um, it's just, a, it, it's easier for me to laugh than cry. Uh, but while all of that was happening, I have this other set of memories of my father. When I was four years old, <clears throat> my dad decided he was going to read to me every night. And my dad was a huge Tolkien guy. And so the first book that my father, my mom was reading me Dr. Seuss and my father would read The Hobbit. And so we have this really big 12 inch by 12 inch illustrated copy of The Hobbit. And he would read to me every night and he would read it out loud and um, follow the, the text with his finger so that I could, and that's how I learned how to read. And wow. so he read, Every night to me, read the Lord, first The Hobbit, and then The Lord of the Rings. And so we finished the books when I was maybe eight. And then the next day, we started over. But instead of him reading to me, I had to read to him. And so I was eight years old, wow. reading, reading Tolkien out loud. <laughs> and to this day, I remember in a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. Not a nasty, dirty, wet hole filled with the ends of worms or newsy smell. <laughs> nor yet a dry bare sandy hole with nothing to sit down on or to eat it was a hobbit hole and that meant comfort and so we started reading the hobbit and we finished that and then we made it about two-thirds of the way through the first book in the lord of the rings trilogy the fellowship of the ring and then my my mom decided finally to leave my dad i was around nine years old and so she packed my my sister and i into a car and we left and we we went off and then you know, we, we just lived in abject poverty and, uh, you know, on food stamps and government aid until yeah. you know, I was in high school and I got old enough to work. And so books were always a form of escapism for me. And so although I have a, a lot of very, very horrible memories of my father, I also have this gift that he gave me, this, this love of, of reading and of writing and of stories and of fantasy and of adventure. And that love I carry it it got me through some of the hardest times and reading when I was young it saved my my mind and and it, and it gave me a place to go and right it was an escape you know very much
a safe escape. Yeah. And then writing turned out to be an escape from everything else from, you know, feeling it was a self-expression. It turned into, then I was in, you know, some bands and it turned into like song lyrics and, right. And so, so you you kind of dabbled in every kind of realm of writing, you know, I think it's beautiful. The story about your dad, because as, as a child, I think that our brains are so easily malleable and so I think the fact that you were so young and that you saw your dad in two different lights, like that dark and that light, the fact that as a, a child, you were still able to grasp onto the light and remember that story in that way. And perhaps like the fact that he was reading you those types of books, maybe that's why you were drawn to um, what you were drawn to in, in your you know, middle school and high school yeah. began writing. Yeah, no, it, it it certainly set the the tone for my understanding of what what stories are, right? I mean, once you read Tolkien when you're five, where do you go from there? <laughs> you know, it's, it's hard. It's like what what's the next book? That Harry Potter wasn't around then. That is so and, wild. Yeah, it's really interesting, but it, it really, you know, I sat in anger about it for so very long, and you know, and I'm still, you know, I don't, I don't think that what any I don't think that anything that happened in that house was okay right but it's easy to see the lesson after you've learned it but and the older you get too it's easier to see it clearly the further away from it you are for sure but it it really for me now I I look back on that and I can it's it was hard to reconcile that all of the things that I love about myself or make me special or uh are are skills that i cultivated that on which now the the very foundation of my financial and personal success is built came from those experiences and so i don't know that i fully agree with the aphorism that nothing happens to you things just happen for you Mm -hmm. i think that things happen and then you have the opportunity to do something with them right and yeah it's all it's easier to go back and like retroactively make them fit into this narrative of like well it you know it created this thing but uh i think that yeah it's there it's 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 rough to decipher that boundary of everything is happening for me like you said i mean in like the worst drastic cases like losing a child or something like you know it's like it's in those cases it's so hard and then but to be in the spiritual realm, um, like, I, I don't know, I have, I have really old memories of, like, the first memory that I have writing in middle school, I think I was, like, in seventh grade, I was, like, hiding in the bathroom, I didn't want to go to lunch, I didn't want to go to recess, and I was writing out a memoir <laughs> of my life before, before <laughs> things went bad, you know, because my parents got divorced when I was 10, lots of lies, lots of weird dynamics. So I was writing as if, like, I was writing a story about my life when things were good. Like, that was what I was, like, so focused on. So, like, our, the things that we go through, I really do feel like it shapes our psyche. And I resisted it for so long, like, yeah, this is my past, or yeah, this, this is what made me anxious or have depression and 
really like we could use those things as our medicine and like that's what you're doing for people by the stories that you share you're allowing people to just like be where they are and you're you're just delivering your own medicine that you had to like take you know yeah 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 I love I love hearing people's childhood just it just even though you might know somebody right for like 10 years like they're your best friend but like if you don't really know where they come from and I feel like that's why we're we could still be really good friends with people from from middle school or high school because we saw their roots like we saw their families and we saw we like knew what they were going through yeah they become we become a part of that story and it's and I think it's really important uh if you can to hold on to some of that um i i mentioned earlier i have three best friends who you know i've known since high school it's really important to me that i have just that this touchstone to like before i had any success before i had any certainty about anything when i was just like figuring it out and changing majors a bunch of times and trying to trying to do whatever it is I wanted to do or just kept making mistakes. It's nice to have people there who witnessed all of it. And right. it's really, it's really beautiful to just know that there's people out there like, no matter what, they're, they're going to stick around. Yeah. What would you say is like one of the most pivotal moments or like shift changes, like as your career was going, like, is there, is there a certain like epiphany or, moment change that you really feel was the next step yeah in 2011 i i had been running my online content and uh, product business so i i had um i don't assume that your audience knows anything about me so i will i got i was in the online fitness space which meant that i was creating ebooks or, or like you know digital courses for fitness and doing some online coaching and in 2009, when I started it, I, I managed to get really good at it very, very quickly. And, and I had a lot of success. And, um, 2010 was, um, was a very good year financially. 2011 was my first seven-figure year. And so I knew that I was on pace to make seven figures that year. And this was in um, November, early November of 2011. And how nope, did that I'm feel? Sorry, that's, how did, I, sorry. I'm, actually, I'm all the way. I'm giving you the wrong information. I, it was, wait, no, it, well, it doesn't matter, but it was, yeah, it felt right. weird. It I felt mean, cause weird you to said be, you, you came from a very, I don't want to say unfortunate, but just a, you know, very yeah, struggle yeah. background. Yeah. So that must yeah, have been crazy. It was super weird. I was, it made me, it fucked me up about money. Cause like all of a sudden I was like running this business and my expenses were very low and I was basically printing money by doing something I love. And I was like, this is really fucking strange. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, you know, and then this thing, and I'm really happy this happened when I first started making decent money, um, that became the driver and it was like, just make more, make more. But then in 2011, this moment that I was talking about, I would, I've been making seven figures. I got this check um, from one of the companies that I was working with 
and it was for uh, $23,294 for this big thing that I done. And that's, it's a, that's a lot of money. And it was hanging on my refrigerator with a magnet that, and it had been there for like three weeks. And I looked at it and I'm like, I should really deposit this check, but man, I don't want to go to the bank and this whole thing. Um, and then I sat there and I was like, what is my life that I can have a check for $23,000 and not deposit it and my life is not affected. Yeah. And so I, I sat with myself and this is a real epiphany for me. And I realized that if I doubled the amount of money I was making that moment, if I just woke up the next day making twice as much money, my life would not change in any measurable way. I would still drive the same car, I'd live in the same apartment, I'd have the same friends, I'd do the same thing. All right, guys. The times we're in right now are very strange and sometimes scary. At first, I was skeptical about online therapy, but I truly enjoyed the whole ritual of going to my therapist's office and creating a routine around it. But now we're in a completely different circumstance, and it doesn't mean we have to put our mental health on hold. If anything, now is the time to uplevel our healing. BetterHelp is an easy-to-use platform of online therapy. I look at therapy as a real way to get an honest second opinion on the issues that I'm facing in my life. It's nice to have a non-biased opinion and get some advice from someone who isn't your friend or family member because, let's face it, we can't always spill our guts to our friends and family. And sometimes the issues that we're going through involve the relationships in our life. So if you're ready to try online counseling, the Vibe Within listeners are going to get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com vibe. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash vibe. So hop on the online therapy train with me along with 800,000 people taking charge of their mental health. The time is now. No more procrastinating our healing. So get 10% off of your first month if you visit betterhelp.com slash vibe. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash vibe. And so I was like, well, how much money would I need to make for my life to change and what would change? And I thought maybe if I made 10 times as much money, I'd like buy a plane, right? So if my business goes to now making $10 million instead of making 1.3 at that time, um, with me keeping like, you know, so let's say my take home is like 8 million a year, some ridiculous number. Um, maybe I would do some crazy shit, like buy a plane. Of course. Well, like, as, oh, like, as anybody would with that much money. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's pretty much how it goes. Right. But that's... I was like, well, I don't want to buy a plane. <laughs> what the fuck am I? Now I got to own a plane. I got to learn how to fly. I don't want to do that. So I thought, all right, if I made twice as much money, nothing would change. So money is no longer the goal in the business. So now what's the goal? What is the, what's the driver? And at that point, it stopped being money and started being fulfillment. And now, you know, as a business coach and somebody who helps people build businesses and create revenue, my goal is always to get people to that exact point to, because, you know, anyone who says that money isn't important is wrong. I, I agree. Money, I, I, I get it. I get that. I get the whole thing that money doesn't buy happiness. I understand that. But when you're dealing with people like us 
who have trauma around money and financial security and root chakra imbalances that have to do with home, money, career, all that. It's, I'm, I'm a skeptic and I'm a realist and I'm also a spiritual person, but like, I definitely think that this, the past couple years, as I've been kind of growing myself and stepping into that, um, that trust that money's going to come in, rewiring the whole money, um, relationship that I have has been like one of the most, like the, my favorite part of, of just doing the work but like it I'm sure that moment for you like was like oh okay maybe all of my money trauma is healed like it definitely it wasn't healed I still felt like unworthy of it in a lot of ways and I said I was definitely a little bit too spendy on a lot of things but the big thing for me was I just didn't make decisions based on whether or not it was going to get me the most money. I was like, what's going to get me the most fulfillment. Yeah. And I also was like, all right, I can, I can afford to be philanthropic. And I started, you know, there was a, there were two years where I um, gave a considerable amount of money to hunger related charities. And that's awesome. Um, which, which is, you know, I just thought I'm as a fitness professional, I was making money off people who were heavy, like people who had eaten too much. And I'm like, well, I want to use some of that to feed people who don't have enough to eat. Wow. And I thought yeah. there was like a poetry to it. Yeah. But but a big thing is money does not buy happiness, but money creates the opportunity to seek happiness. And that's a that's money doesn't solve all of your problems, but it solves the problems with money. It creates some money problems, but it solves yeah. a lot of the problems. And getting to Maslow's higher, you know, up up a level on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, it's when you don't have to worry about food, shelter, water anymore. Right. It's just the basic core needs. You yeah, you could then yeah explore the upper reaches and so I really try to help people get to that point because there's when people come to me and they want to make seven figures in their business or they want to make six figures in their personal income there's no combination of words that are going to come out of my mouth that are just going to convince them that's not going to make you happy it's just like when a person comes to you and you know when I was a fitness pro and they're like okay I want I want six pack abs. Like giving them the abs doesn't make them happy, but there's nothing you could say until they get the abs that's going to make them realize that they have to get to the top of that mountain and still feel hollow. Right. And it's the same thing when you write a New York Times bestselling book or when you get a seven figure business. Like now, all it does is just provide another reference point that the work is inside the road. Leads it's just work. one extra level of understanding that. Yeah, I love that. That's so true because. Um, this has it's been so so like enlightening to feel that shift of like minimalist like less is more I don't need a lot of shit and it it feels so light and it feels so good and I've realized like yeah money doesn't heal as long as your basic needs are met but yeah um so when when you say that people when people come to you Mm. you um you obviously have your writing business, you have your yeah. workshops and, and we'll, mm-hmm. we'll get more into that. But when people come to you, since you're, you, you also seem like you're sort of like a life coach type thing. I, I don't want to like put you in that, that like category, sure. but like I, you, you, were, you worked in the fitness and wellness. Yeah. So, so. I, I worked in the fitness and wellness space for a long time. And because I had a very, very successful business there, people then began to reach out to help them build successful businesses. And okay. I, got really good at that and so now 
I don't do a ton of business coaching anymore. If anyone is interested in that, my partner, Amanda Bucci is much better at it than I was and check her out. But like mostly what I do is I do brand consulting. So like mm -hmm. if people have a, a business that is doing pretty well, I can come in and like see where they can improve. And often I help people um, or help brands in particular cut expenses dramatically and improve profitability. And I'm really good at helping them improve existing revenue streams and, and, and certainly cement like cutting losses rather than, you know, creating new revenue streams. That's not as exciting to me. I really right. like helping people keep the money that they're making instead of just like spending. Um, but so I, yeah, I, still, I, I still work one-on-one -on -one with, with people, with entrepreneurs who are ready to start in a, uh, something that can be important in their life. And sometimes that is like a more life coaching type situation wherein I'm helping them get over money blocks or mm -hmm. emotional blocks. Most of the time it's just business consulting and, and helping them see what the, what the issues are. But as you mentioned earlier, in my day to day, I mostly write books and consult on books and teach storytelling workshops because that's the stuff I love the most. I think that it goes, but it goes right. It kind of links together with the business thing because you're helping people maybe rewrite the story of their business or figure out what their business really is. And like it, at the end of the day, it is kind of all storytelling when you're trying to, when you're trying to create a vibe or an energy around a product or whatever yes. business so no, it's every 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 commercial you've ever seen is a short story every advertisement you've seen in a magazine is a is a at least a bit of a, of a narrative and yeah there, there has to be a story and there's a, a great you know some one of the things i have I, I get quoted on all the time i don't know if it's a great quote but um you know nothing exists but that there's a story attached every everything that exists like was didn't just you know pop into being right. it had to be created and we've we've we're all part of that and it's really nice to think of things that way yeah i mean stories literally shape who we are i mean i remember growing up and my mom would tell us all these stories about her her grandparents and her italian family and like just all all the little details and stuff like that and those little stories i literally remember them now and she tells the same stories so it's like, I don't think that we realize it, but just being in a family, you're always hearing stories about like your, your crazy, like, you know, ancestors or people in your family. And, and that kind of starts the whole, oh, this is who I am, or this is my family, or this is my story, you know? Right, right, exactly right, yeah, well put. Um, so let's come to right now and what you, what you're doing right now in this moment that's giving you the most fulfillment like what is your snapshot right now and what are you working on in your life as far as maybe shadow work or just stuff now in this in this current phase my my big thing right now uh in terms of personal work has been really getting over the childhood sexual trauma so i and i just i just need to clarify this uh i mentioned earlier that my father was very abusive to me he did not he, he was not the perpetrator perpetrator of childhood sexual assault uh that was a great uncle um and one of the interesting things was coming to realize that this this great uncle was not a fixed adult presence in my life he was just around sometimes and these were crimes of opportunity 
but he was a very, very stable presence in my father's young life. And so then coming to grips with the fact that like my father had almost definitely been sexually abused his entire life. And that's why he was acting out by, you know, being physically abusive to me um, and to my mother. So that was, that was very healing. So the last two years have really been working through all of that and the way it manifested in depression and suicidal ideation, suicide attempts. And um, it also, man it manifests as it always does. And, you know, everywhere, every, every, every trauma has snakes, its tendrils under the, under the cement to come up through the cracks. And it affected my uh, ability to have relationships because it affected my worthiness. Mm -hmm. I didn't know how to exist without a wound. I didn't know how to ever, I was so screwed up with shame that I didn't know how to ever like really be visible with anyone. And so what would happen is I would keep getting involved in uh, either unhealthy romantic relationships with that, that could just be tumultuous and feel familiar in that way, in that chaotic way. Or I would get involved in relationships that like had the potential to be happy and then I would sabotage them right. with infidelity <laughs> or there. the other stuff. <laughs> And healing all of it uh, has taken a lot of time. You know, first it was like, all right, well, if I keep doing this thing around the infidelity, then obviously I'm just not a monogamous person. And then I move towards polyamory and I identify as a polyamorous person. But even that, you know, there was there's still opportunity to hide things and to lie because they're shame. And so working through all of that over the past like three years um, was incredible. And the last, wow. last year has been amazing. I've been with this incredible woman, Amanda Bucci, and Amanda is such an unbelievable partner. And we have created the most beautiful container. It, it's the most beautiful thing in my life right now. Amanda it's, is not. It's I'm beautiful sorry, but, to watch. No, it's, it's really like, it's a breath of fresh air to watch because not, I don't know. Like, even though Instagram's Instagram, I can still feel energy. I'm still, I, I still have those kinds of like gifts or whatever you want to call it. Mm -hmm. But it's just really nice to see a genuine. And I feel like when I when I started following you guys, you you reminded me of people I knew already. Like mm -hmm. that's how you know um, that it's a it's like a genuine energy with you. But like, um, that's amazing. And how did you guys meet? If you don't mind. Sharing. Oh, no, not at all. No, I'm happy to share. So as I mentioned, I was in the fitness industry for many years, and so was Amanda, but we existed in separate sections of the industry. I was in the affiliate marketing, the email marketing, and Amanda got her start on uh, YouTube and Instagram, and ne'er the two shall meet. So we just like on these different islands in the same ar archipelago. And then she started uh, trying to grow her business and she hired a business coach in particular. She, uh, you, you may be familiar with Lewis Howes. Yeah. Um, so he's got a great podcast called the school of greatness. So Lewis yeah. has a business mastermind and Amanda joined it. Lewis is one of my very close friends and he found out that she was in fitness and there were other people in the mastermind who all sort of said, how do you two not know each other? It's crazy. You're, oh, you're no both way. very prominent in this industry. And so they introduced us. And like eight people within three weeks kept saying, do you, do you know Bucci? Do you know Roman? And so they introduced us. We like, we ran into each other at the gym and then put lunch on the books. Went out and got coffee. She was in a relationship. I was at the tail end of a marriage in which I was not being faithful. And wow. we had a totally professional lunch and that was it. And then we just really didn't even see each other for 
months. And then sometime towards the end of that year, I asked her to come speak at my business coaching group and she spoke about social media and killed it. And then didn't see her again for five months. And then she was in New York City. She was on Gary Vaynerchuk's podcast. And uh, we, we grabbed lunch with my then partner. And then- Oh wow, like, this is awesome. So that, then, but still nothing. Right. And then, then she was speaking at another business event uh, hosted by a friend of mine. And this was in Las Vegas. And while she was there, she was just on her Instagram stories and mentioned that uh, she was going to go see Taking Back Sunday. And Taking Back Sunday is one of my favorite bands. I'm a big I love Taking kid. Back Sunday. I love, I fucking I'm love so, them. I'm so happy that you're going to buy into the story. So <laughs> she had put on her stories like, I'm speaking of this thing today, seeing Taking Back Sunday tomorrow. And I like looked at the, the tour schedule and I was like, oh shit, like, I think I can make that. I was in New York and I, so I, I just DM'd her, you know, I just responded to the story and I was like, hey, like, I think I'm, I don't look at flights. I think I might come and like hang out with you guys and see the show. Is it cool if I crash? And anyone who knows me knows that that is a totally it, like on brand thing to do. I have flown across the country for many an emo show. Mm-hmm. And just cause, and I just, it's, a, it's Vegas. My friends are there. Right. Why not? Now that is right. Except if you are a young woman talking to a young man and thinking her, her interpretation of this is like, oh, this guy really likes me. He's going to fly across the country to see me under the pretext of seeing Taking Back Sunday. <laughs> I wound up, I wound up not going. I just like couldn't make it work with my schedule. But we walked away from that interaction with two very different feelings about where we were Amanda thought like oh this guy's into me and I was just like oh sorry I couldn't like do the concert but uh, Amanda's an Enneagram type nine which is like you know they they often need they're the peacemaker and they need to be like invited her interpretation of that event as this guy likes me created the quote-unquote invitation for her to now escalate the conversation because it had been totally professional. Mm-hmm. And now she starts being a little bit more flirtatious. Right. And I'm totally, I'm totally oblivious. I had made the decision, you know, Amanda is someone who has a ton of followers. Men make obnoxious comments to her all the time. So the, like, from the moment I met her, I was like, I will never sexualize this person. She is only going to exist in this platonic category. And so her flirting gets like a little bit more obvious and I am totally oblivious. And then one day, we're having a conversation about polyamory and she's just asking questions, which should have pointed out that maybe she was interested, but a lot of people ask questions about poly. It's a very talk aboutable thing. Yeah. And this conversation goes on and, you know, she had sort of asked like, so what is it like to sort of like, how do you, do you just like approach people directly and say, Hey, I want to have sex with you. And I was like, no, you say some, you know, you approach them and like, you know, with all respect, I just want to let you know, I find you, incredibly attractive and I feel connected to you and if you're open to it I I would like to explore the idea of maybe having a sexual interaction with one another and as much as I like the way things can develop organically with traditional courtship I think there's something equally as beautiful about just being direct she's like oh yeah that's really cool that's really beautiful we talk for like two more hours we're just dming texting whatever and then it's all of a sudden it's like 3 a.m in New York she's out in LA this is this is August of 2018 I believe and um yeah and so uh, so it was a very gradual thing very gra- like- very very <laughs> gradual and then here's here's the action point so this is august of 2018 
we're having this conversation. I'm like, all right, I gotta go to bed. It's great talking to you. And she's like, well, before you go, uh, I think you're really great. I feel like we have a great connection. I would be interested in having a sexual interaction. What do you think? And I was there like, you go. oh, I get it now. I get it. It okay, literally that. took you all the way up the ladder to fucking see she that. She literally had to ask me if she, if I'd be interested in having sex with her. would be like, oh, all right, maybe she likes me. And I had to, I checked in with myself because I didn't just want to say yes. I was like, oh, all right, let me. Yes, as it turns out, I think I would like to have sex with you, Amanda. And, what a proper, uh, like, transaction. Yeah. It was just very honest. And then I yeah. immediately, like, spoke to my partner about it. And, and I was like, Amanda's interested. Like, what are your thoughts? And um, and then we just sort of started this dialogue. And it, then it escalated. It got very emotional very quickly. Eventually, it, it, the, the poly situation between, like, just trying to manage those two relationships got really hard. Amanda and I stopped our relationship for a bit. And then the other partner and I ended things um, just like, you know, for different reasons. And then about a month and a half later, Amanda and I were like, oh, wait, now let's like the path is clear. Let's try it this way. And we've been together ever since. That's beautiful. <laughs> yeah. And there you so, go. And there's a really awesome kind of unexpected, but but also expected because what <laughs> we were just talking about in the beginning, like meeting everybody on Instagram, meeting everybody. Yeah. Um, and you basically met her because the expanders in your life led you to her. I don't know if you're yes. familiar with Lacey Phillips' work, and, mm-hmm. yep. and yeah, just it just seems like everything really, every person and everything really does lead you these like breadcrumbs just to like follow or whatever. But I wanted to ask you something. Um, I guess a little personal, so share whatever you would like. But so coming uh, coming from a background that was kind of sexually traumatized how did you transition into this very open I don't want to say open but just you know healthy um and open and comfortable and you know this sexual um relationship you have with yourself today what what did you do to to get there I was I was not aware of my sexual trauma uh for um quite a long time. It wasn't until I was 34 years old that I realized that I'd been sexually abused from the time I was like five until seven. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was like pushed down for like 28 years. And uh, it came up the first time during my second ever MDMA experience. <laughs> and so like, I'm really ha- I'm happy that, as it should, I'm happy that it happened then because I was held in this very like open-hearted, you know, like blissful container, and I was like, "Oh fuck, I gotta, I'm gonna have to think about that later." But that first year that I was working, that I was aware of it, it really messed me up. Yeah. Um, so I've always, I've always had like a really, and maybe it's because I had sexual trauma, but I've always had like a very open sexual energy. I, um, I'm very lucky that my growing up in a household with a strong woman. Uh, my mom never made me feel weird about sex. Sex was like openly discussed. I remember when I was 16 years old, I was having sex with my high school girlfriend and the condom broke. And I thought, like, I don't know what to do. I'm just going to call my mom. And I told her and she's <laughs> so like, all right, well, you, you need, at the time it wasn't called plan B. It was called the morning after pill. Uh-huh. And so she's like, you need this. Like, I'll get it from the pharmacy on the way home. <laughs> so yes, like, mom, come through um, with that. <laughs> um, and I, I remember one time, my same high school girlfriend, like we were at my graduation party and my mother and her were having a conversation and, and 
and her mother was like, ah, yeah, I'm like, I'm really not comfortable with like the sleepovers. And my mom basically like rode the ride. She's like, listen, they're kids. They're going to have sex. So like she can either spend the night. My son can have sex with her in his bed like a lady. Or we can try to stop them. And they'll find a dark street. And he can fuck her in the car. So tell me what you want me to do. Yo. Um, I was just like a boss. Truth. And so because of that, I've always had like a very open sexual experience. Fuck yeah. That's amazing. um, I think that's beautiful. As far as my own healing, um, I didn't realize how much healing I needed to do. So the thing for me is I like, instead of being afraid of sex, like many people who are victims of sexual trauma, I, I definitely had an unhealthy relationship with it where I like was definitely motivated by it. I don't know that I would say I was a sex addict, Mm -hmm. but I definitely made some decisions that were not healthy for my life in the pursuit of sex because I used it to get validation and value but I didn't I never knew why right I also when I was like 26 found my way into the world of kink and realized that my sexual expression is as a dom because my very first sexual experience is I had no agency and so to that I needed to be in control of sexual interactions and instead of someone taking control and using it to hurt me I would be given control and I would use it to protect my submissive. And it's like a very, like a very healing sacred thing to be in a BDSM relationship. And then once I was aware of the sexual trauma, I just kept working through it and healing. There was a period where I, I couldn't have sex with anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so like about for about a year after I first discovered the trauma, I couldn't have sex with anyone unless I was in the BDSM dynamic. I simply like, I had to be, like addressed the right way I just had to know that I was in control to feel safe so Um, were you were you going to therapy as well through that yes yeah Yeah. I was doing um I was going to therapy and doing a lot of my own personal work and doing some very frequent uh by frequent I mean like every eight to 12 weeks uh MDMA experiences to like work through stuff on my own um, I had this one therapist who I I can't believe I admit this but I ambushed my therapist one time I like showed up and uh, we're about to start the session. I was like, just so you know, I took MDMA about 45 minutes ago. It's going to hit. So let's do the work. <laughs> and he, he was well within his rights to like ask me to leave. But right. didn't. And so we got some work done. Hey. Um, so you basically but, created yeah. your, your, whole, your, your own little maps um, study yeah, right there. Exactly. <laughs> so I have, <clears throat> I've been very, very fortunate to be surrounded by good friends. But it's, it's been in particular like... 2000 2018 was a a, a a I did feel like I did 80% of my healing in 2018 mm. and then the last 20% in 2019 to get not to be totally 100% healed but to get to 100% of the way to where I am today like mm-hmm. last 20% was 2019 and I'm growing every day it was I don't I don't want to say it was a bad year it was it was a good year but it was very um <clears throat> my Saturn return started and um 2019 was amazing and also really crazy. So I feel like 2020 is going to be, I don't know if you're in numerology, but last, so tw- 2019, that that's a 12. So okay. a 12 year um, has to do with the 12, like the 12th house in astrology. And that's mm-hmm. mental illness, addiction, sexual trauma, mm-hmm. um, like psychosomatic stuff, mm-hmm. neuro, you know, um, brain chemistry and stuff like that so now we're going into a four year and the number four is more about 
completion and, and wholeness and love. And it's just really interesting because I kind of felt that energy shift right away, like right away. But um, like what you were saying, um, that, that period of time when you couldn't have sex with anybody, um, that's where I'm at right now. I actually, most recently, the past few years, maybe the last year, more intensely my sexual trauma has come up and now that I'm completely sober like yeah I dabble with pot and whatever here and there but um no drinking and no like hard drugs uh it's been it's been you know a a little while now like a little less than a year but um it has made me feel like I just need to protect myself and I can't like it's not it's not that I am keeping my keeping me away from having sex it's just where I'm at right now it feels so it feels so normal and effortless that I'm just like all right I'm just gonna ride this out for however long but I am super it's thank you for sharing that like I think for asking and so you would say writing also like let's let's go to what you're doing right now um with your workshops and everything what's what's the if you could like kind of you know, in a nutshell, explain to everybody how amazing your workshops are and what you offer and like the vibe and just what's yeah. going on in them because they seem really different. They are, they're really remarkable. And so storytelling really is, it's such a, it's such an incredibly innate part of who we are. It's how we pass down knowledge as societies. Um, you know, the, the story of our history, the story of our, of our socialization. It's also how, as individuals, person to person, per, person to person, we transmit uh, information. But it's also how our brains work. Our brains are wired for story, and um, you know, there's all this. Uh, there's a lot of biochemistry stuff, but we're storytelling creatures. Sorry. And so much of noise. We're storytelling creatures, and so much of what we do follows the path of the hero's journey. And so I. Yeah teach that to people along with um so I, I teach people the importance of understanding the hero's journey so that they can interpret stories including the stories in their life their personal the hero's life. journey right like their but personal. also their personal journey in their life whatever that is so like if, and, and any great change you know whether it's starting a relationship ending a relationship starting a business falling in love having a child we'll all follow the same model of the hero's journey but so many people come to me because they're interested in learning how to use storytelling for marketing or branding or sales and that is covered but i'm constantly redirecting it back into like and this is how it applies to inner work and this is how it applies to your brain and this is how it applies to conversations between people and so but a really a really great young kid at the last one in la named nick who's 20 years old and it's it's amazing that he went out of his way to to drive in from Arizona to come to this what? event awesome. in LA. Yeah, he drove. It was incredible. And you know, he he's a copywriter. He he writes sales copy for you know digital digital marketing companies. And he this, he was so interactive, which is really beautiful. But he kept saying throughout the workshop, "I feel like I came to like learn about copy, and I'm like I'm getting life coaching. I feel like I'm like getting over my shit and." And one of the, um, I also do one level, uh, or rather a one-on-one pretty high level stuff with uh, CEOs. And I worked with, um, I don't know if it would be uncouth to say it, but I worked with, uh, there's a company called Boss Babe. 
and um, Natalie Ellis is the is the CEO and co-founder. And I worked with her and Danielle. And so Natalie just like really had this big breakthrough about like her her mother, and it's just really amazing stuff. That is, it's great. So people can come in to learn to just be better. I have I have clients who are getting ready for a TED talk, and I teach them the power of storytelling for that. I have other people who are writing books. I have people who are CEOs. Many people want to learn it for marketing or sales or branding. Other people just want to learn it so that their content is better. But everyone who comes in understands themselves on a different level when they leave. And they, they have a better understanding of how to use storytelling to transmit their truth in a way that right. will be understood. So often when we're expressing our truth to people, we jump in in the middle, we jump in, and, but we have to create that context for them. So telling, relating it to people as a story helps them understand what we're going through. And, and instead of just telling people facts, if we tell them stories, they will understand and feel connected. Yeah, right. I mean, like, like we said, stories are everywhere. And like, when you, I feel like the more that I write, I don't know, even if it's just like chicken scratch journaling, or if it's an article that I'm getting published for Elephant Journal or whatever, like both of those modalities help me connect to myself in the same way, but you know, more intense and a little bit different in each way. And it's so much more than just a writing workshop is you're doing shadow work too. So yes, essentially yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot of shadow work, <laughs> which is fun because yeah. so many, so often you're getting people, you know, who, I think most most of my clients at this point are like they're they're aware of consciousness and they're like they're not all coming with like a deep understanding of Jungian archetypes or um, or shadow work, but they leave having done some of it, even if they haven't identified what it's for yet. It, right. you know, at the very least, I try to provide people the skills uh, to do the work and to use story for healing. Because even if they don't have anything to heal right now. At some point they will, and they'll still have these skills. It's creating that awareness of, of who you are, just of who you are. And, and doesn't, you don't have to say who, like my, about my childhood or whatever, but who am I right now? Yeah. That helps you write from a more uh, genuine place rather than who people think we should be or th- the topics that we think we should be writing about. Or how do you go about that is like one of my last questions is, if someone comes to you and they know that they're supposed to be a writer, like I'll use me for example, I'll just be selfish. If I were to come to you and say, you know, I know that I, I know that I want to be a writer. I've been writing since I was seven years old. I know that one day I'm going to write a book, but I'm definitely not ready for it. How would a writer like me who hasn't, who hasn't gotten anything published book wise articles? Yes what would your advice be for anybody who's listening who might be a writer and just wants to really start up leveling the, you know, more paid, more opportunities Um, with writing and stuff like that. Got it. Um, There's two answers here. The first is the, the key to getting better is to write things you don't care about. So when you write anything, you're attached to three pieces of it. You're attached to the content, which is the actual stuff that you wrote, to the craft, which is the writing itself, how it looks on the page, how it sounds, and then the creation, how much time, effort, and energy you put into making it. And so most of the time, people start with write what you love, or write what you know, which turns into write what you love. But if you love something, 
you're attached to it. And so you can't be objective about it. If I tell you to write your story, you know, your, your childhood story, and then I come back with feedback on it, I'm like, okay, well, for the story, it makes sense to like take this part out. People get really, it's hard for them to make edits to it. And it's hard for them to take feedback and criticism because it's, it's, they feel like it's them. Mm-hmm. So the way that you remove the attachment to the content is to write about content you don't. Instead of telling me what it was like to grow up, tell me what your day-to-day is. Tell me, write about your morning commute. And so when you are writing about mundanity, when you're writing about things about which you don't really care, now you can focus on making them better and more interesting. You could focus on the craft itself. That makes so doing, total sense. Doing that is the easiest way to improve your, and getting feedback and, and practicing. So that's one thing. So if, when people say like, I'm not ready to write a book, I often ask like, is it because the story isn't ready or because you don't think your writing is good enough? If it's because you don't think your writing is good enough, that's what you do. The other part is if the story isn't ready, just go live life harder, do more. Uh, as far as the business component, the up-leveling, the easiest way to get published in magazines is to never, ever, 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 magazines or any publication in the world, never forget that um, editors are the most overworked and underpaid people in any aspect of the publishing like machine. And sucks. if you make it sucks, it's a, it's a hard job. I mean, these people went to, you know, Northwestern or, or University of Missouri and have journalism degrees from Columbia and, and they paid a lot of money for these degrees and they come out and they become a junior editor making $30,000 a year for, you know, um, it's a lot of work. It's just a lot of actual like reading and work. It's a lot of reading and (laughs) writing. So if you never, ever, ever forget that the editor is either your best friend. So the editor is only ever going to be your best friend, but you don't want to make yourself their worst thing, which is to say, don't submit shit until it's ready. Don't submit stuff that an editor is going to have to completely rewrite. If the article is, it's a 700 word assignment, submit 699, not 701. Practice writing in the voice of the publication so that they have to do less to make it printable for that publication. The less work an editor needs to do, the more likely they are to want to work with you. You're just cutting down their time. So just make it easy for for editors. And then you start with the lowest level publication who will have you and start building relationships with editors. And the key to building a relationship with editors, if if you want to be a writer, who gets paid to write, spend less time on Instagram and more time on Twitter. Twitter is where journalists hang out, okay. it's where editors hang out, and start, if somebody publishes, like if they, if they put up a tweet with a link to something that they wrote or, or edited, respond to it. Start building relationships. Use Twitter to build relationships with editors of the magazines, of the, of the websites for which you would like to write. And then never forget that name recognition is everything. So people think that success isn't what you know, it's who you know, but it's really also who knows you. Who you know is important, who knows you is equally important. Name recognition is important. So if you're trying to get published, um, just if you interact with someone's Twitter or Instagram like 15 times a week, they're gonna remember your name, of course. And then when you finally submit an article, 
when you finally submit an article to them and you submit an essay or a piece or whatever, and they see your name pop up in their, that email, it's not, who the fuck is John Romanello? It's, oh, it's that John Romanello guy from Twitter. And they're going to open the email. They're going to okay. get me from the top of the pile. So you just uh, build that re- relationship. And then from there, sense. make it easy for them. That's so the basically, like, the precursor for getting someone's attention via email would be a little bit of Twitter action and energy and love. Yes. <laughs> that, yeah. and give, that's like thoughtful yeah. feedback on their writing. Don't just say great article, exclamation point, thumbs right. up emoji. Just, you know, respond back with, I really love this piece. I loved how you did this one thing, or this is a beautiful sentence, or this is something more need to, people need to be talking about, or thank you for writing this. Here's why it meant something to me give really thoughtful feedback and like that's what makes you the same thing that makes you stick in someone's head as a friend or as a lover or you know as a as a colleague that kind of thing works when you're building a professional relationship and so do all of that before you start submitting pieces and then when you submit them make sure they don't need that much work that's the best advice ever (laughs) thank you i like i'm like writing notes right now as you're telling me this um well where can everybody find you um I feel like I could talk to you for probably another hour. <laughs> um, oh, I am, I'm happy to come back on at another point. This was really enjoyable. I mean, thank you. Firstly, before we dive into shameless self-promotion, uh-huh. uh, I just want to say thank you for, for doing this with me. I am on a lot of podcasts because for whatever reason, people seem to keep asking me to go on and talk about myself. And uh-huh. it, 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 it's a weird relationship to ever say yes to being on a podcast because it almost means that I feel intrinsically i have i am i'm worth talking about which you know i think we all are but i i I love sharing the things that i do because i think that they're really valuable to to other people and having gotten away from the ego of it all um is is really great for me so i love just just being able to share this so thank you for providing me that opportunity but more than anything else when i say i've been on a lot of podcasts i don't do that to inflate my own sense of importance but to tell you that i have a lot of referential data against which this experience sits as a counterpoint Mm -hmm. and you ask a lot of questions that most people don't and and i appreciate that and it it provides really great value for your audience and also for my audience who might not have gotten to hear this stuff anywhere else because most people don't ask me about my sexual trauma they there it makes them uncomfortable and they want to skip over it and i think that there's so much value in it and i just really want to say thank you to you and to your listeners for providing that so truly it does mean a lot to me it's amazing i i um i receive that um that nice gesture and um people on the podcast probably if they've been listening it's it's a little over a year old so i'm sure that my first interviews weren't that great so if you're still here thanks for sticking around um (laughs) so yeah, where can everybody find you and connect with you? Um, now that you sure. gave me the whole Twitter thing, I'm going to literally go on Twitter yeah. and I guess surrender, but I didn't have a Twitter forever. But yeah, where can we all find you? I have very conveniently and cleverly made all of my social media handles my name. So it's just John Romanello on everything. That's R-O-M-A-N-I-E-L-L-O. And that is also the URL for my site. So I am most active on the Instagram because that's where my people are and I like to I like to interact with people but um, I'm also if you if you have any question that's too personal for the public forum please DM it to me or email it to me and I'm always happy to talk with anyone about anything. Perfect. Well 
I thank you so much for doing this and having this conversation with me. I hope that our, our physical body paths cross at some point and we can, um, instead of like a virtual eye hug, we can have a, a real physical hug. That'd be cool. Um, I look forward to that. Sure. Yeah, awesome. Before you guys click to the next podcast, make sure that you listen to the entire song after this outro because it's really fucking dope and you're going to love it. So just fast forward and listen to the rest of the song. It's amazing. Okay, I really hope that you guys enjoy the episode. He is such an easy person to talk to. So if you are looking for someone really easy and just effortless to follow on Instagram, go ahead and follow him on Instagram. Because right now, it's super important for us to follow people on Instagram and social media that is going to nourish our brain instead of make us tapped into this comparison, um, comparing our body, comparing our life, comparing our relationship or lack of, comparing our skill set, comparing our family relationships, comparing everything, our money. Right now, we need to focus on folk on following people and accounts that are going to make us feel ignited and better about ourselves and make us feel um, inspired and joyful instead of looking at us. And instead of, you know, like when we look at a profile and it makes us feel like shit, we have to ask ourselves like, okay, well, what's this profile giving me? If it's giving me a healthy amount of envy and a healthy amount of inspiration, then that's fine. But there's a very distinct line between feeling jealous and feeling shitty about ourselves and looking at ourselves in the mirror after we look at someone's profile or their body type or their workout regime or what they eat in a day. I I don't know if, if I'm the only one, but I really don't understand why the I what I eat in a day videos exist because we all know in the health and wellness industry that not everybody is going to eat the same way and look the same or feel the same so why do these videos exist you know what I mean like I really don't know what the what the goal is with it but it's it's frustrating because there's statistics you know that show and prove that shorter women petite women have slower metabolisms than tall tall women um, and muscle has to do a lot with that so if you're super muscular you have more you have a higher metabolism so really it doesn't matter what people are eating in a day it depends on your body it depends on your metabolism it depends on your biology of your of your physical body so it just really I don't get it I don't get why people want to know what someone eats in a day I find it really narcissistic to (laughs) to create a video like that but I don't know and I've had people ask me like oh what do you eat in a day and it's like I would never want to post a video of what I eat in a day because I have hypothyroidism and I have Hashimoto and I have hormonal imbalance so the things that I eat aren't going to necessarily be what I I would 
promote eating for everyone. You know, I'm very deep into the herbs and adaptogens and cooking my own weird concoctions and food combining and sometimes that stuff doesn't look that appetizing and sometimes it I'm eating things and I'm spicing things up with herbs and spices because I know that they have anti-inflammatory you know components and sometimes I don't eat things just because they look good sometimes I eat things that smell bad and that that necessarily I wouldn't want to eat like sauerkraut I wasn't a fan of sauerkraut for the longest time and now I actually really like it and I'm making these crazy concoctions with um sauerkraut and avocado and making this like avocado um dip but it tastes like tuna fish and it's really weird it's a really weird food combination but it's because I, you know, I just experiment with things and I'm, I'm plant-based and I'm vegan. So um, different textures and different things will manifest and create like different flavors of things that I never thought I could make. So I don't know. That's my spiel on what I eat in a day and why it's dumb for people to make <laughs> YouTube videos on that. But All right. Thank you for listening. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. Share the episode with someone that could use it and rate, review, and subscribe. All right. Love you guys. What this is saying then is that just as you don't know how you manage to be conscious, how you manage to grow and shape this body of yours. That doesn't mean to say that you're not doing it. Equally, you don't know how the universe shines the stars, constellates the constellation, and galactifies the galaxies. You don't know. But that doesn't mean to say that you aren't doing it in just the same way as you're breathing without knowing how you breathe.